Effective Trade Unionism by James Connolly, starting with a poem, Labour, Burton by Burton Braley, page 4. Out of chaos, out of murk, I arose and did my work. While the ages changed and sped, I was toiling for my bread. Underneath my steady blows, forest fell and cities rose, and the hard, reluctant soil blossomed richly from my toil. Palaces and temples grand, wrought I with my cunning hand. Rich indeed was my reward, stunted soul and body scarred, with the marks of scourge and rod, I the tiller of the sod. From the cradle to the grave, shambled through the world, a slave. Crushed and trampled, beaten, cursed, serving best but served the worst. Starved and cheated, gouged and spoiled, still I builded, still I toiled. Undernourished, underpaid, in the world myself had made. Up from slavery I, er, I rise, dreams and wonders in my eyes. After brutal ages past, coming to my own at last. I was slave, but I am free. I was blind, but I can see. I the builder, I the maker, I the calm traditional tradition breaker. Slave and serf and clod no longer. Know my strength, and who is stronger? I am done with ancient frauds, ancient lies and ancient gods. All that sham is overthrown, I shall take and keep my own. Unimpassioned, unafraid, master of the world I've made. Page 5 Introduction by Liam McNulty and Sean McGammer Wanting a road from capitalism to socialism, James Connolly sought, experimented, groped in a number of different organisations. With Jim Larkin, Connolly led the workers' side in the 1913 Dublin Labour War. He went from Secretary of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union to be a military commander of the insurgents of Dublin in 1916, and from that on the 12th of May 1916 to a seat. He had a leg wound turned gangrenous before a British Army firing squad in the killing yard of Kilmainham Jail. Some of his ideas have to be criticised now, such as his ideas about ancient Irish society, but to one idea he clung from the turn of the century to his death in 1916, industrial unionism, workers' solidarity across grades and trades, and sympathetic rights strikes. This is how he saw his work with Larkin on the Irish Transports Union, a union for an industry and the members watching the moment until they could take over running the industry. Part 1. Connolly at first followed a socialist consensus, which he would later summarise like this. If it were now possible to examine the socialist speeches of that period, we would find that an inordinately large proportion of time was given up in them to a belittling of industrial action and to what was practically an exaggeration of the ease and facility with which the working class could achieve its rights at the ballot box. From Changes, Forward, 9th of May 1914. He did not disdain trade unions even then. He was a member of the Dublin United Labour's Union and represented this body on Dublin Trades Council. The union in turn sponsored Connolly's electoral, electoral contest in the Wood Quay Ward of Dublin Corporation in March 1902. 
His strategic views changed in the early years of the 20th century as Connolly embraced the views of Daniel de Leon. He became a de Leon man at the turn of the century, and in his conception of his union work he remained a Deleonite long after he broke with Deleon the man. Page 5. Daniel de Leon, 1852-1914, was the leader of the Socialist Labour Party, SLP, of the USA, and of a small group of smaller Socialist Labour Parties in Britain and a few other countries. All of them were in the Second Socialist International, which allowed for more than one affiliate in a single country. De Leon ran the SLP USA very rigidly, and they were hostile to all of the other Socialists. At that time, the only US unions in the American Federation of Labour led by Sam Gompers could accurately be described as lily-white job trusts, effectively business unions which aspired only to organise the elites of the working class and barred black and Chinese workers. In 1905 in Chicago, De Leon united with Eugene Debs, a leader of the railway workers, Big Bill Haywood, a leader of the Western Federation of Miners and others to form the Industrial Workers of the World, IWW, as a revolutionary union organisation open to all. They were known as the Wobblies, ironically because Wobbly is the last thing they were. The way they got their name was typical of them. A Chinese member could only say he was a member of the One Wobble Wobble, so they took the name Wobbly and bore it proud as a badge of honour. The IWW split in 1908, the De on one side and the working class trade unionists and some socialists on the other. James Connolly became an organiser of Eugene Debs' Socialist Party and then for the majority IWW. All of them kept the policy of industrial unionism but it was De Leon who had theorised it. The bourgeoisie and the feudalism had control of trades and towns. They controlled a part of the division of labour in society. They took centuries to develop their own wealth and strength. Therefore, they could take power when they were acting under false religious beliefs. They already had much of society's wealth. Unlike the bourgeoisie, the working class remains the basic wage-slave class in society. It does not combine political subordination with control of a part of the means of production or of surplus society's surplus wealth. The nearest thing we have to our organic intellectuals is the trade union officials. The working class must take power deliberately, knowingly, consciously, in one combined movement. This is the fundamental problem of the working class as a revolutionary class. Part 2 on page 7. <coughs> James Connolly expressed it plainly at the beginning of an article he wrote in America after he had broken with the with Leonist party. There is not a socialist in the world today who can indicate with any degree of clearness how we can bring about their cooperative commonwealth except along the lines suggested by industrial organisation of the workers from industrial unionism and constructive socialism. All the industrial unionists in the first place in terms of clarity the Deleonists argued that the working class must build in every industry one big union. This union must correspond to the given industry, be an understudy, so to speak, for the controlling capitalists, and be ready as a signal to take over the industry. The bourgeoisie had its own intellectuals and its own system of thoughts within feudalism. 
The working class must have its own party, taking care of politics and all the problems of leading the industrial unions and of industrial society. As Connolly saw it, this conception links the broad social aim with the immediate class struggle. It also, quotes, destroyed at one blow all the fears of a bureaucratic state, ruling and ordering the lives of every individual from above and thus gives assurance that the social order of the future will be an extension of the freedom of the individual, end quotes. It was his answer to Hilary Belloc's claim that social reform and social provision would provide the servile state. Other people who did not know or who failed to understand De Leon supported industrial unions. This trend, sometimes called syndicalism, became a powerful movement in many countries, including Britain, in the years before World War I. The syndicalists expected to take power in society, and soon. Larkin and then James Connolly thought were building an industrial union in the Irish Transport Workers' Union. They were not apolitical syndicalists. In 1912, and after the union founded a Labour Party, the Irish Trade Union Congress and Labour Party, they became separate organisations in 1930. Powerful syndicalist movements would surge across Britain in the 1970s. There were some 200 workplace occupations in those years. The difference was that the syndicalists before 1914 believed that what they did in industry was an act of direct preparation for socialism. The 1970s syndicalists had no such perspective. They voted Labour or, disproportionately, Communist Party. A central flaw in the syndicalist reasoning was that the big unions became bureaucratised too, perhaps more or more easily than the old craft unions. Page 8, part 3. Connolly worked for the industrial unionist conception from when he became a Delianist early in the 20th century. When he broke with Delian, Personally, he did not break with the idea of the big industrial union. He lived long enough and gained enough experience, notably in the Dublin Labour War of 1913-14, to see, in the article Old Wine in New Bottles, what was wrong with the syndicalist conception, and he even identified wildcat strikes as a partial answer to bureaucratisation. Not long enough to see how the Russian Revolution developed workers' councils alongside unions, as both vehicles of struggle in revolutionary times and modes of workers' rule, while retaining independent trade unions as a safeguard. The Dublin Labour War of 1913-14 is one of the great epics of working-class struggle and endeavour. Officially it lasted from August 1913 to mid-January 1914, but some of the lockouts dragged on beyond that date. It is well known throughout the world because Vladimir Lenin wrote about it. That was in the first week and therefore many of his judgments were not true for the strike lockout as a whole. Nor were the lockouts, locked out workers, innocents picked upon by the 400 Dublin employers who banded together to fight them. The Dublin workers who were members of Jim Larkin's union, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, really had provoked the employers. They really had banded together and used sympathetic or solidarity strikes so that no small workplace was isolated in its struggles and every group could appeal to workers indirectly involved in their trades to back them. 
Seafarers could depend on Dublin dockers to strike until the seafarers were allowed to join their union. Union members would act on behalf of or in alliance with other embattled workers. Many rural workers came to Dublin for employment, thus pushing wages down. The union and solidarity action exerted pressure in the opposite direction. Slowly the wages of general labourers were pushed up. Solidarity strikes have been illegal in Britain since the 1980s. Labour leader Tony Blair expressed the idea that Britain had the most repressive labour laws in Western Europe, but as Labour Prime Minister he did not remove the Thatcher anti-union laws. Neither did his successor Gordon Brown. Their removal remains something for the labour movement to achieve in the future. In Dublin, the success of sympathy strike action led to the lockout and strike, coordinated by an elderly Dublin millionaire reprobate, William Martin Murphy, the employers hit back. Connolly described this scene early on in the conflict. Quotes, page 8. Take the case of the United Builders Labourers Trade Union, for instance. This was a rival union to the Irish Transport Workers Union. Many sharp passages had occurred between them, and the employers counted confidently upon their cooperation in the struggle. When the members of the union were asked to sign the agreement, demanded by the bosses, promising never to join or help the transport union, no one man consented. But all over Dublin there were 2,500 members marched out to help the transport boys. What is true of that union is also true of most of the tradesmen. All are showing wonderful loyalty to their class. Coach builders, sawyers, engineers, bricklayers, each trade that is served by general labourers, walks out along with the transport boys, refuses to even promise to work with anyone who signs the employer's agreement, and cheering lines up along their, their, with their class. Or think of the heroic women and girls. Did they care to evade the issue? They might have remained at work, for the first first part of the agreement asks them to merely repudiate the transport workers, and as women they are members of the Irish Women's Workers' Union, not of the transport. But the second part pledges them to refuse to help the transport union, and in every shop, factory and sweating hellhole in Dublin, as the agreement is presented, they march out with pinched faces, threadbare clothes and miserable footgear, but with high hopes, undaunted spirits and glorious resolve shining out of their eyes. The British Labour movement backed Dublin heroically, sending money. Ships full of food sent by the Labour movement to support the strikers and locked out workers steamed into Dublin repeatedly. The power of the bosses to compel workers by starving their children was severely limited. Much of Dublin was tied up. Magnificent as British labour movement help in food and money was, it was not enough. Only strikes in solidarity with Dublin could have inflicted the necessary damage on the Dublin employers. A class struggle like that of Dublin has a logic of its own. The logic of the strike lockout in Dublin and of British labour movement help to the Dublin workers was a general strike in the UK. Militants in Britain took up the call for a general strike. The idea was seriously discussed for the first time since Chartist times. There had been a general strike in 1842 in the north of England, uh, the so-named Plug Riots. But the Union officials fought it off. 
They drew the line at strikes in support of Dublin. The long and unequal struggle dragged on. In January, the Irish leaders called on Dublin workers to go back on the best terms they could get. The bosses hadn't won. Page 10. The union survived, but the work, workers hadn't won either. The power of the workers had been curtailed for a while. Part 4. The experiments in socialism and trade unionism of Congolese time will go on because socialism is the alternative to exploitation and wage slavery goes on. We learn from our setbacks and defeats. Rosa Luxemburg said it provokingly but well, quotes, Revolution is the only form of war in which the ultimate victory can be prepared only by a series of defeats. What does the entire history of socialism and of all modern revolutions show us? This first spark of class struggle in Europe, the revolts of the silk, silk weavers in Lyon in 1831, ended with a heavy defeat. The Chartist movements in Britain ended in defeat. The uprising of the Parisian proletariat in the June days of 1848 ended with a crushing defeat, and the Paris Commune ended with a terrible defeat. The whole road of socialism so far as revolutionary struggles are concerned, is paved with nothing but thunderous defeats. Where could we do? Where would we be today without the, those defeats from which we draw historical experience, understanding power and idealism? We stand on the foundation of those very defeats because each one contributes to our strength and understanding. End quotes. The end of Russian and European Stalinism frees the working class. Whatever is new, whatever the working class invents, it is certain that it will centre around working class solidarity with combativity. The virtues which James Connolly surveys, chronicles, facilitates and explains in these articles about effective trade unionism. Pages 11 to 14. James Connolly's uh, Effective Trade Unionism. Industrial Unionism and Constructive Socialism There is not a socialist in the world today who can indicate with any degree of clearness how we can bring about the cooperative commonwealth except along the lines suggested by industrial organisation of the workers. Political institutions are not adapted to the administration of industry. Only industrial organisations are adapted to the administration of corporate commonwealth that we are working for. Only in the industrial form of organisation offers us even a theoretical, constructive socialist programme. There is no constructive socialism except in the industrial field. The above extracts from the speech of Delegate Sturton, editor of The Wade Slave of Hancock, Michigan, so well embody my ideas upon this matter that I have thought well to take them as a text for an article in explanation of the structural form of socialist society. In a previous chapter, I have analysed the weakness of the craft or trades union form of organisation alike as a weapon of defence against the capitalist class in everyday conflict on the economic fields and as a generator of class consciousness on the political fields and pointed out the greater effectiveness for both purposes of an industrial form of organisation. In the present article, I desire to show how they are engaged in building up industrial organisations for the practical purpose of today, are at the same time preparing for the framework of the society for the future. 
It is the realisation of that fact that indeed marks the emergence of socialism as a revolutionary force from the critical to the positive stage. Time was when socialists, if asked how society would be organised under socialism, replied invariably and airily that such things would be left to to the future to to decide. The fact was that they had not considered the matter, but the development of the trust in organised capital in general, making imperative the industrial organisations of labour on similar lines, has provided us with an answer at once more complex, complete to ourselves, and more satisfying to our questioners. Now to analyse briefly the logical consequences of the position embodied in the above quotation, page 12. Political institutions are not adapted to the administration of industry. Here is a statement that no socialist with a clear knowledge of the essentials of his doctrine can dispute. The political institutions of today are simply the coercive forces of capitalist society they've grown up out of and are based upon territorial divisions of power in the hands of the ruling class in past ages and were carried over into capitalist society to suit the needs of the capitalist class when the class overthrew the dominion of its predecessors. The delegation of the functions of government into the hands of representative elected, representatives elected from certain districts, states or territories represents no real natural division suited to the requirements of modern society, but is a survival from a time when territorial influences were more potent in the world than industrial influences, and for that reason is totally unsuited to the needs of the new social order which must be based upon industry. The socialist thinker, when he paints the structural form of the new social order, does not imagine an industrial system directly or ruled by a body of men or women elected from an indiscriminate mass of residents within given districts, said residents working at a heterogeneous collection of trades and industries. To give the ruling, controlling and directing of industry into the hands of such a body would be too utterly foolish. What the socialist does realise is that under a social democratic form of society, the administration of affairs will be in the hands of representatives of the various industries of the nation, that the workers in the shops and factories will organise themselves into unions, each union comprising all the workers at a given industry. That said union will democratically control the workshop life of its own industry, electing all foremen, etc., and regulating the routine of labour in that industry in subordination to the needs of society in general, to the needs of its allied trades, and to the departments of industry to which it belongs. That representatives elected from these various departments of industry will meet and form the industrial administration of national governments of the country. In short, social democracy, as its name implies, is the application to industry or to the social life of the nation of the fundamental principles of democracy. Such application will necessarily have to begin in the workshop and proceed logically and consecutively upwards through all the grades of industrial organisation until it reaches the culminating point of national executive power and direction. In other words, social democracy must proceed from the bottom upwards, whereas capitalist political society is organised from above downwards. 
social democracy will be administered by a committee of experts elected from the industries and professions of the land. Catalyst society is governed by representatives elected from districts and is based upon territorial division. The local and national governing or rather administrative bodies of socialists, page 13, will approach every question with impartial minds, armed with the fullest expert knowledge born of experience. The governing bodies of capitalist society have to call in an expensive professional expert to instruct them on every technical question and know that the impartiality of said expert varies with and depends upon the size of his fee. It will be seen that this conception of socialism destroys at one blow all the fears of a bureaucratic state ruling and ordering the lives of every individual from above, and thus gives assurance that the social order of the future will be an extension of the freedom of the individual and not the suppression of it. In short, it blends the fullest democratic control with the most absolute expert supervision, something unthinkable of any society built upon the political state. To focus the idea properly in your mind, you have but to realise how industry today transcends all limitations of territory and leaps across rivers, mountains and continents. Then you can understand how impossible it would be to apply to such far-reaching intricate enterprises the principle of democratic control by the workers through the medium of political territorial divisions. Under socialism, states, territories or provinces will exist only as geographical expressions and have no existence as sources of governmental power, though they may be seats of administrative bodies. Now, having grasped the idea that the administrative force of the socialist republic of the future will function through unions industrially organised, that the principle of democratic control will operate through the workers correctly organised in such industrial unions, and that the political territorial states of capitalist society will have no place or function under socialism, you will at least you will at once grasp the full truth embodied in the words of this member of the Socialist Party, whom I just quoted, that, quotes, only the industrial form of organisation offers us even a theoretical constructive socialist programme, end quotes. To some minds, constructive socialism is embodied in the work of our representatives on the various public bodies to which they have been elected. The various measures against the evils of capitalist property brought forward by or as a result of the agitation of socialist representatives on legislative bodies are figured as being of the nature of constructive socialism. As we have shown, the political state of capitalism has no place under socialism. Therefore, measures which aim to place industries in the hands of or under the control of such a political state are in no sense steps towards that ideal. They are but useful measures to restrict the ground of greed of capitalism and to familiarise the workers with the conception of common ownership. This latter indeed is their chief function. But the enrolments of the workers in unions patterned closely after the structures of modern industries and following the organic lines of industrial development, page 14, is par excellence the swiftest, safest and most peaceful form of constructive work the socialists can engage in. It prepares within the framework of capitalist society the working forms of the socialist republic and thus, while increasing the resisting power of the worker against present encroachments of the capitalist class, it familiarises him with the idea that the union he is helping to build up 
is destined to supplant class in the control of the industry in which he is employed. The power of this idea is to transform the dry detail work of trade union organisation into the constructive work of revolutionary socialism and thus make of the unimaginative trade unionist a potent factor in the launching of a new system of society cannot be overestimated. It invests the sordid details of the daily incidents of the class struggle with a new and beautiful meaning and presents them in their true light as skirmishes between the two opposing armies of light and darkness. In the light of this principle of industrial unionism, every fresh shop or factory organised under its banner is a fort wrenched from the control of the capitalist class and manned with the soldiers of the revolution to be held by them for their workers. On the day that the political and economic forces of labour finally break with capitalist society and proclaim the workers' republic, these shops and factories, so manned by industrial unionists, will be taken charge of by the workers there employed, and force and effectiveness be thus given to that proclamation. Then and thus the new society will spring into existence, ready, equipped to perform all the useful functions of its predecessor. From Socialism Made Easy, a 1909 pamphlet, an earlier version of this text appeared as Industrial Unionism in the Harp, June 1908. Page 15. What is the sympathetic strike? What is the sympathetic strike? It is the recognition by the working class of their essential unity, the manifestation in our daily industrial relations, that our brother's fight is our fight, our sister's troubles are our troubles, that we are all members one of another. In practical operation, it means that when any body of workers are in conflict with the employers, that all other workers should cooperate with them in attempting to bring that particular employer to reason by refusing to handle his goods. That, in fact, every employer who does not consent to treat his work people on a civilised basis should be treated as an enemy of civilization and placed and kept outside of the amenities of facilities offered by civilised communities. In other words, that he and his should be made taboo, treated as unclean, as tainted, and therefore likely to contaminate all others. The idea is not new. It is as old as humanity. Several historical examples will readily occur to the mind of the thoughtful reader. The Wemgerichse of Germany of the Middle Ages, where the offended person had a stake driven into the ground opposite his door by orders of the secret tribunal, and from that moment was as completely cut off from his fellows as if he were on a raft in mid-ocean, is one instance. The boycott of Land League days is another in that boycotts, the very journals and politicians who denounced the Irish Transport Union used a weapon which, in its actual operations, were more merciless, cruel and repulsive than any sympathetic strike had ever yet been. And even the Church, in its strength and struggles, when it was able to command obedience to its decrees of excommunication, supplied history with a stern application of the same principle which for thoroughness we could never hope to equal. Such instances could be almost indefinitely multiplied. When the peasants of France rose in the Jacquerie against their 
feudal barons, did not the English nobles join in sympathetic action with those French barons against the peasants, peasantry, although at that moment the English were in France as invaders and despoilers of the territory of those same French feudal barons? When the English peasantry revolted against their masters, did not all English aristocrats join in sympathetic action to crush them? When the German peasantry rose during the Reformation, did not Catholic and Protestant aristocrats cease exterminating each other in a sympathetic attempt to exterminate the insurgents? Page 16. When during the French Revolution the French people overthrew kings and aristocrats, did not all the feudal lords and rulers of Europe take sympathetic action to restore the French monarchy? even although doing it involves throwing all industrial life in Europe into chaos and drenching a continent with blood. Historically, the sympathetic strike, strike can find ample justification, but, and this point must be emphasised, it was not mere cool reasoning that gave it birth in Dublin. In this city, it was born out of our desperate necessity. Seeing all classes of semi-skilled labour in Dublin so wretchedly underpaid and so atrociously sweated, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union taught them to stand together and to help one another, and out of this advice the more perfect weapons has grown. That the labour movement here has utilised it before elsewhere is due to the fact that in this city what is known as general unskilled labour bears a greater proportion to the whole body of workers than elsewhere, and hence the workers are a more movable, fluctuating body, are more often as individuals engaged in totally dissimilar industries than in the English cities, where skills trades absorb so great a proportion and keep them so long in the one class of industry. Out of all this turmoil and fighting, the union has evolved, is evolving, among its members a higher conception of mutual life, a realisation of their duties to each other and to society at large, and are thus building for the future in a way that ought to gladden the hearts of all lovers of the race. In contrast to the narrow restricted outlook of the capitalist class, and even of certain old-fashioned trade unionism with their perpetual insistence upon rights, this union insists almost fiercely that there are no rights without duties, and the first duty is to help one another. This is indeed revolutionary and disturbing, but not half as much as would be a practical following out of the moral precepts of Christianity. For the immediate presence, present, the way out of this deadlock is for all sides to consent to the formation of a conciliation board, before which all disputes must be brought. Let the employers insist upon levelling up the conditions of employment to one high standard. Treat as an Ishmael any employer who refuses to conform and leave him unassisted to fight the battle with the union. Let the union proceed to organise all the workers possible, place all disputes as to wages before the board for discussion, and only resort to a strike when agreements cannot be reached by the board. And as all the employers would be interested in bringing the more obdurate and greedy to reason, strikes would be rare. And when strikes were rare, the necessity for sympathetic strikes would also seldom develop. Page 17. Thus we will develop a social conscience and lay the foundation for an orderly transformation of society in the future into more perfect and a juster social order. 
letter is part of an article, Labour in Dublin, in the Irish Review, October 1913. Page 18. A Rebel Song by James Connolly in 1903. Come workers sing a rebel song, a song of love and hate, of love unto the lowly, and of hatred to the great. The great who trod our fathers down, who steal our children's bread, whose hands of greed are stretched to rob the living and the dead. Then sing our chorus, then sing our rebel song as we proudly sweep along, to end the age-old tyranny that makes with human tears. A march is nearly done, with such each setting of the sun, and the tyrant's might is passing with the passing of the years. We sing no more of wailing, and no songs of sighs and tears. High are our hopes, and stout our hearts, and banished all our fears. Our flag is raised above us, so that all the world may see. Tis labour's faith and labour's arm, alone can labour free. Chorus Out of the depth of misery we march with hearts aflame, with wrath against the ruler's false, who wrecked our manhood's name. The serf who licks the tyrant's rod may bend forgiving knee. The slave who breaks his slavery chain, a wrathful man must be. Chorus. Our Our army marches onwards, with its face towards the dawn, in trust secure in that one thing the slave may lean upon. The might within the arm of him, who knowing freedom's worth, strikes hard to banish tyranny from off the face of earth. Pages 19 to 26. Industrialism and the Trade Unions. In the second part of my book, Socialism Made Easy, I've endeavoured to establish two principles in the minds of my readers as being vitally necessary to the upbuilding of a strong revolutionary socialist movement. These two principles are, first, that the working class as a class cannot be become permeated with a belief in the unity of their class interests unless they have first been trained to a realisation of the need of industrial unity. Second, that the Revolutionary Act, the act of taking over the means of production and establishing a social order based upon the principles of the working class labour, cannot be achieved by a disorganised, defeated and humiliated working class but must be the work of that class after it has attained to a commanding position on the fields of economic struggle. It has been a pleasure to me to note the progress of socialist thought towards acceptance of these principles, and to believe that the publication of that little work helped to a not inconsiderable degree in shaping that socialist thought and in accelerating its progress. In the following article, I wish to present one side of the discussion which inevitably arises in our Socialist Party branches upon the mooting of this question. But as a preliminary to this presentation, I would like to decry and ask my comrades to decry and dissociate themselves from the somewhat acrid and intolerant manner in which this discussion is is often carried on. Believing that the Socialist Party is part and parcel of the labour movement of the United States and in the and that in the growth of that movement to a true revolutionary clearness and consciousness it the Socialist Party is bound to attract to itself and become mentor and teacher of elements most unclear and lacking in class consciousness. We should recognise that it is as much our duty to be patient and tolerant with the erring brother or sister within our ranks, 
as with the ranks hidden outside the folds. No good purpose can be served by wildly declaiming against intellectuals, nor yet by intriguing against and representing impossibilists. The comrades who think that the Socialist Party is run by compromisers should not jump out of the organisation and live, leave the revolutionists in a still more helpless minority. And the comrades who pride themselves upon being practical socialist politicians should not too readily accuse those who differ with them of being potential disruptors. Viewing the situation from the standpoint of an industrialist, I am convinced, page 20, that the that both the industrialists and those estimable comrades who pander to the old-style trade unions to such a marked degree as to leave themselves open to the suspicion of coquetting with the idea of a Labour Party, both, I say, have the one belief. Both have arrived at the one conclusion from such different angles that they appear as opposing instead of aiding auxiliary forces. That belief which both share in common is that the triumph of socialism is impossible without the aid of labour organised upon the economic fields. It is their common possession of this one great principle of action which impels me to say that there is a greater identity of purpose and faith between those two opposing wings of the Socialist Party than either can have with any of the intervening schools of thought. Both realise that the Socialist Party must rest upon the economic struggle and the forces of labour engaged therein, and that this and that the socialism, which is not an outgrowth and expression of that economic struggle, is not worth a moment's serious consideration. There, then, we have found something upon which we agree, a grounds common to both, the first desideratum of any serious discussion. The point upon which we disagree is, can the present form of American trade unions provide the socialist movement with the economic force upon which to rest, or can the American Federation of Labour develop towards industrialism sufficiently for our needs? It is the same problem stated in different ways. I propose to state here my reasons for taking the negative sides in that discussion. Let it be remembered that we are not, as some good comrades imagine, debating whether it is possible for a member of the American Federation of Labour to become an industrialist, or for all its members but we are to debate whether the organisation of the American Federation of Labour is such as to permit of a modification of its structural formation to keep pace with the progress of industrial ideas amongst its members, whether the conversion of the membership of the American Federation of Labour to industrialism would mean the transformation of that body into an industrial organisation, or the disruption of the Federation and the throwing of it aside as the up-to-date capitalist throws aside a machine, be it ever so costly, when a perfectly functioning machine has been devised. At this point it is necessary for the complete understanding of our subject that we step aside for a moment to consider the genesis and organisation of the American Federation of Labour and the trade unions patterned after it, and that this involves a glance at the history of the labour movement in America. Perhaps of all the subjects properly pertaining to socialist activity, this subject has been the most neglected, the least analysed, and yet it is the most trivial. Studies of Marx 
and popularizing of Marx, studies of science and popularizing of science, studies of religion and application of same with socialist interpretations. All these we have without limit, but of attempts to apply the methods of Marx and of science to analysis of the laws of growth and incidents of development of the organizations of labor upon the economic fields, the literature of the movement is almost, if not quite, absolutely barren. Our socialist writers see in some strange and to me incomprehensible manner to have detached themselves from the everyday struggles of the toilers and to imagine they are doing their whole duty as interpreters of socialist thought when they bless the economic organisation with one corner of their mouth and insist upon the absolute hopelessness of it with the other. They imagine, of course, that this is the astutest diplomacy, but the net result of it has been that the organised working class has never looked upon the Socialist Party as a part of the Labour movement, and the enrolled Socialist Party member has never found in American socialist literature anything that helps him in strengthening his economic organisation or leading to it to victory. Perhaps some day there will arise in America a socialist writer who in his writing will live up to the spirit of the Communist Manifesto that the socialists are not apart from the labour movement, are not a sect, but are simply that part of the working class which pushes on all others, which most clearly understands the line of march. Awaiting the advent of that writer permits me to remind our readers that the Knights of Labour preceded the American Federation of Labour, that their structural formation of the Knights was that of a mass organisation, that they aimed to organise all toilers into one union and made no distinction of craft nor of industry, and that they cherished revolutionary aims. When the American Federation of Labour was organised, it was organised as a dual organisation, and although at first it professed a desire to organise none but those then unorganised, it soon developed opposition to the Knights and proceeded to organise wherever it could find members, and particularly to find to seek after the enrolment of those who were already in the Knights of Labour. In this it was assisted by the goodwill of the master class, who naturally preferred its profession of conservatism and identity of interest between capital and labour to the revolutionary aims and methods of the Knights. But even this assistance on the part of the master class would not have assured its victory were it not for the fact that its method of organisation into separate crafts recognised a certain need of the industrial development of the time which the Knights of Labour had failed up to that moment to appraise at its proper significance. The Knights of Labour, as I have pointed out, organised all workers into one union, an excellent idea for teaching the toilers their ultimate class interests, but with its effect that it made no provision for the treating of special immediate craft interests by men and women with the requisite technical knowledge. The scheme was the A was the scheme of an idealist, too large-hearted and noble-minded himself to appreciate the hold a small interest can have upon men and women. It gave rise to jealousies. The printer grumbles at the jurisdiction of a body comprising tailors and shoemakers over his shop struggles, and the tailors and shoemakers fretted at the attempts of carpenters and bricklayers to understand the technicalities of the disputes with the bosses. 
To save the knights of labor and to save the American working class, a pilgrimage in the desert of reaction, it but required the advent of some practical students of industry to propose that, instead of messing all workers together irrespective of occupation, they should, keeping the organization intact and remaining bound in obedience to one supreme head, for administrative purposes only, group all workers together according to their industries and sub- subdivide their industries again according to crafts. That the allied crafts should select the ruling body for the industry to which they belonged, and that the allied industries again should elect the ruling body for the whole organization. This could have, this could have been done without the slightest jar to the framework of the organization. It would have recognized all technical differences and specialization of functions in actual industry. It would have kept the organization of labor in line with the actual progress of industrial development and would still have kept intact the idea of the unity of the working class by its common bonds of brotherhood, a universal membership card and universal obligation to recognize that an injury to one was an injury to all. Tentative steps in such a direction were already being taken when the American Federation of Labor came upon the scene. The promoters of this organization, seizing upon this one plank of the Knights of Labor organization, specialized its work along that line, and instead of hastening to save the unity of the working class on the lines above indicated, they made the growing realization of the need of representation of craft differences the entering wedge for disrupting and destroying the earlier organization of their class. Each craft was organized as a distinct body, having no obligation to strike or fight beside any other craft, and making its own contracts with the bosses, heedless of what was happening between those these bosses and their fellow laborers of another craft in the same industry, building, shop or room. The craft was organized on a national basis to be governed by the votes of its members throughout the nation, and with a membership card good only in that craft, and of no use to a member who desired to leave one craft in order to follow another. The fiction of national unity was and is still paid homage to, as vice always pays homage to virtue, by annual congresses in which many resolutions are gravely debated, to be forgotten as soon as Congress adjourns. But the unifying qualities of this form of organization are best revealed by the fact that the main function of the Congress seems to be to provide the cynical masterclass with the, to them, pleasing spectacle of allied organizations fiercely fighting over questions of jurisdiction. This policy of the American Federation of Labor, coupled with the unfortunate bomb incident of Chicago, for which the Knights of Labor received much of the blame, completed the ruin of the latter organization and destroyed the growing unity of the working class for the time being. The Industrial Union, as typified today in the industrial workers of the world, could have, as I have shown, developed out of the Knights of Labor as logically and perfectly as the adult develops from the child. No new organization would have been necessary, and hence we may conclude that the industrial workers of the world is a legitimate heir of the Native American labor movement, the inheritor of its principles, and the ripened fruit of its experiences. 
On the other hand, the American Federation of Labour may truly be regarded as a usurper on the throne of Labour, a usurper who occupies the throne by virtue of having strangled its predecessor and now, like all usurpers, raises the cry of treason against the rightful heir when it seeks to win its own again. It is obvious that the sway of the American Federation of Labour in the American Labour Movement is but a brief interregnum between the passing of the old revolutionary organisation and the ascension into power of the new. But I fancy I hear someone say, granting that all that is true, may we not condemn the methods by which the American Federation of Labour destroyed or helped to destroy the Knights of Labour and still believe that out of the American Federation of Labour we may now build up an industrial organisation such as we need, such as the industrial workers of the world aims to be. This we can only answer by clearly focusing in our minds the American Federation of Labour system of organisation in actual practice. A carpenter is at work in a city, he has a dispute with the bosses, or all his fellow carpenters have. They will hold meetings to discuss the question of a strike, and finding the problem too big for them, they will pass it on to the headquarters, and the headquarters pass it on to the general membership. The general membership from San Francisco to Rhode Island, from Pudunk to Kalamazoo, will have a vote and say upon the question of the terms upon which the Chicago carpenters work, and if said carpenters are called out, they will expect all these widely scattered carpenters to support them by financial and moral help. But while they are soliciting and receiving the support of their fellow carpenters from Dan to Bishopy, they are precluded from calling out in sympathy with them the painters who follow them in their work, the plumbers whose pipes they cover up, the steam fitters who work at their elbows, or the plasterer who precedes them. Yet the cooperation of these workers with them in their strikes, page 24, is a thousand folds more important than the voting of strike funds which would keep them out on strike until the building season is over and the winter sets in. In many cities today there is a building trades council which is looked upon by many as a beginning of industrialism within the American Federation of Labour. It is not only the beginning but it is as far as industrialism can go within that body and its sole function is to secure united action in remedying petty grievances and enforcing the observance of contracts, but it does not take part in the really important work of determining hours or wages. It cannot for the simple reason that each of the 33 unions in the building industry are international organisations with international offices and necessitating international referendums before any strikes, looking to the fixing of hours or wages are permissible. Hence, although all the building trades branches in a given district may be satisfied that the time is ripe for obtaining better conditions, they cannot act before they obtain the consent of the membership throughout the entire country, and before that is obtained, the moment for action is passed. The bond that is supposed to unite the carpenter in New York with the carpenter in Kokomo, Indiana, is converted into a wall of isolation, which prevents him uniting, except in the most perfunctory fashion, with the men of other crafts who work beside him. The industrial union and the craft union are mutually exclusive terms. 
Suppose all the building trades branches of Chicago resolved to unite industrially to form an industrial union. Every branch which became an integral part of said union pledged to obey its call to action would by so doing forfeit its charter in the craft union and in the American Federation of Labour and outside Chicago its members would be considered as scabs. The Brewers Union has been fighting for years to obtain the right to organise all brewery employees. It is hindered from doing so not only by the rules of the American Federation of Labour, but the, by the form of organisation of that body. Breweries, for instance, employ plumbers. Now, if a plumber so employed would join the Brewers Union and obey his call to strike, he would be expelled from his craft union, and if he ever lost his job in the brewery, would be considered as a scab if he went to work where union plumbers were employed. A craft union cannot recognise the right of another association to call its members out on a strike. A machinist works today in a machine shop. A few months from now, he may be employed in a clothing factory attending to the repairs of sewing machines. If the clothing industry resolves itself into an industrial union and he joins them as he as he needs must if he believes in the industrialism, he loses his membership in the International Association of Machinists. And if ever he loses his factory job and seeks to return to the machine shop, he must either do so as a non-union man or pay a heavy fine if he is permitted to re-enter the International Association of Machinists. Page 25. A stationary engineer works today at the construction of a new building. Three months from now, he is in a shipyard. Six months from now, he is at the mouth of a coal mine. The three different industries requiring three different industrial unions. The craft card is a good is good today in all of them, but if any of them choose to form industrial unions and calls upon him to join, he could only do so on penalty of losing his craft card and his right to strike benefits from his old organisation. And if he did join, his card of membership in the one he joined would be of no value when he drifted to any of the others. How can the American Federation of Labour avoid this dilemma? Industrialism requires that all the workers in a given industry be subject to the call of the governing body or the vote of the workers in the industry. But if these workers are organised in the American Federation of Labour, they must be subject only to the call of their national or international craft body. And if at any time they obey the call of the industry in preference to the craft, they are ordered peremptorily back to scab upon their brothers. If, in addition to this organic difficulty, and it is the most insuperable, we take into consideration the system of making contracts or trade agreements on a craft basis pursued by old style unions. We must see that our unfortunate brothers in the American Federation of Labour are tied hand and foot, handcuffed and hobbled to prevent their advance into industrialism. During the recent shirts waste maker, makers strike in New York, when the question was mooted of a similar strike in Philadelphia, our comrade Rose Pastor Stokes, according to our socialist press, was continually urging upon the short waist shirt waist makers of Philadelphia the wisdom of striking for Christmas and during the busy season. 
No more sensible advice could have been given. It was of the very essence of industrialist philosophy. Industrialism is more than a method of organisation. It is a science of fighting. It says to the workers, fight only at the time you select, never when the boss wants to fight. Fight at the height of the busy season, and in the slack season when the workers are in thousands upon the sidewalk, absolutely refuse to be drawn into battle. Even if the boss insults and vilifies your union and refuses to recognise it, take it lying down in the slack season, but mark it up in your little notebook. And when work is again rushing and master capitalist is pressed for orders, squeeze him, and squeeze him till the most sensitive portion of his anatomy, his pocketbook, ills with pain. That is the industrialist idea of the present phase of the class war as organised labour should conduct it. But whatever may be in the case with the shirt-waist makers, that policy so ably enunciated by comrade Rose Pastor Stokes is utterly opposed to the whole philosophy and practice of the American Federation of Labour. Contracts almost always expire when there is little demand for labour. Page 26. For instance, the United Mine Workers contract with the bosses expires in the early summer when they have, be, have before them a long hot season with a minimal demand for coal. Hence the expiration of the contract generally finds the coal operators spoiling for a fight and the union secretly dreading it. Most building trade contracts with the bosses expire in the winter. For example, the Brotherhood of Carpenters in New York, their contract expires in January, a nice time for a fight in the middle of a northern winter when all work in their vicinity is suspended owing to the rigours of the climate. The foregoing will, I hope, give the reader some food for consideration upon the problem under review. That problem is intimately allied with the future of the Socialist Party in America. Our party must become the political expression of the fight in the workshop and draw its inspiration therefrom. Everything which tends to strengthen and discipline the hosts of labour tends irresistibly to swell the ranks of the revolutionary movement, and everything which tends to divide and disorganise the hosts of labour tends also to strengthen the forces of capitalism. The most dispersive and isolating force at work in the labour movement today is craft unionism, the most cohesive and unifying force, industrial unionism. In view of that fact, all objections which my comrades make to industrial unionism on the grounds of the supposedly or truly anti-political bias of many members of, of the industrial workers of the world is quite beside the mark. The question at the present stage of the game is pure, purely doctrinaire. The use or non-use of political action will not be settled by the doctrinaires who may make it their hobby today, but will be settled by the workers who use the industrial workers of the world in their workshop struggles. And if at any time the conditions of a struggle in shop, factory, railroad or mine necessitate the employment of political action, those workers so organised will use it, all theories and theorists to the contrary notwithstanding. In their march to freedom, the workers will use every weapon they find necessary. As the economic struggle in the preparatory school and training ground for socialists, it is our duty to help guide along rights lines the efforts of the workers to choose the correct kind of organisation to fight their battles in that conflict. According as they choose a right or wrongly, so will 
the development of class consciousness in their minds be hastened or retarded by the everyday experience in class struggles. From International, International Socialist Review, February 1910. Pages 27-33 Industrial and Political Unity Quotes from Max Hayes in International Socialist Review The great strike of the shop employees in the Canadian Pacific Railway has been declared off, lost. While the shopmen were fighting desperately to maintain the organisation and decent work conditions, the engineers, firemen, conductors, trainmen, etc. worked with scabs imported from the States and from Europe, and thus by keeping trains moving, aided to break the strike. It is only one more illustration of what a vicious, not to say downright criminal, scheme of craft autonomy actually is in practice. Here's another example. After four years of hard fighting from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Coast and from the Ohio River to the Gulf, the machinists have been compelled to abandon their strikes on the Santa Fe and the L&N railways. The engines and cars built and repaired on the railway shops by strike breakers were hauled over the roads by members of the old brotherhoods without the slightest objections. No wonder that onlookers became disgusted with such unionism. Some union cards cover a multitude of sins. End quotes. At meetings throughout this country, one frequently hears speakers labouring to arouse the workers to their duty, exclaiming, quotes, You unite industrially, why then do you divide politically? You unite against the bosses in strikes and lockouts, and then you foolishly divide when you go to the ballot box. Why not unite at the ballot box as you unite in the workshop? Why not show the same unity in the political fields as you do on the industrial battlefields, end quotes. At first blush, this looks to be an exceedingly apt and forcible form of appeal to our fellow workers, but when examined more attentively, it will be seen that in view of the facts of our industrial warfare, this appeal is based upon a flagrant misstatement of facts. The real truth is that workers do not unite industrially, but on the country are most hopelessly divided on the industrial fields, and that their division and confusion on the political fields are the direct results of their division and confusion on the industrial fields. It would be easy to prove that even our most loyal trade unionists habitually play the game of the capitalist class on the industrial field, just as surely as the Republic, Republican and Democratic workers, page 28, to it on the political fields. Let us examine the situation on the industrial fields and see if it justifies the claim that economically the workers are united or if it justifies the contention we make that the division of the workers on the political field is but the reflex of the confused ideas derived from the practice of the workers in strikes and lockouts. Quite recently we had a strike of the workers employed on the subway and elevated systems of streetcar service in New York. The men showed a splendid front against the power of the mammoth capitalist company headed by August Belmont, against which they were arrayed. Conductors, motormen, ticket choppers, platform men, repairers, permanent waymen, ticket sellers, 
All went out together and for a time paralysed the entire traffic on their respective system. The company, on the other hand, had the usual recourse to Jim Farley and his scabs and sought to man the trains with those professional traitors to their class. The number of scabs was large, but small in proportion to the Melbourne strike, yet the strike was broken. It was not the scabs, however, who turned the scale against the strikers in favour of the men. That service to capital was performed by good union men with union cards in their pockets. These men were the engineers in the powerhouses which supplied the electrical power to run the cars, and without whom all the scabs combined could not have run a single trip. A scab is a vile creature, but what shall we say of the men who helped the scab to commit his act of treason? The law says that an accessory before the fact is equally guilty of a crime with the actual criminal. What then are the trade unionists who supplied the power to scabs to help them to break a strike? They were unconsciously being compelled by their false system of organisation to betray their struggling brothers. Was this unity on the industrial field, or is it any wonder that the men accustomed to so scab upon their fellow workers in the labour struggle should also scab it upon their class in a political struggle? Is it not rather common sense to expect that the recognition of the necessity for concerted common action of all workers against the capitalist enemy in the industrial battlegrounds must precede the realisation of the wisdom of common action as a class on the political battlefield. The men who are taught that it is all right to continue working for a capitalist against whom their shopmates of a different craft are on strike are not likely to see any harm in continuing to vote for a capitalist nominee at the polls, even when he is opposed by candidates of a socialist and labour organisation. Political scabbery is born of industrial scabbery. It is... <coughs> its legitimate offspring. Instances of this industrial disunion can be cited indefinitely. The longshoremen of the port of New York went out on strike. They at first succeeded in tying up the ships of the shipping trust, great at its wealth is, and in demonstrating the real power of labour when it's when unhampered by contracts with capital. <coughs> Page 29. The shipping trust was taken by surprise, but quickly recovered, and as usual imported scabs from all over the country. Then was seen what the unity of the working class on the industrial field amounts to under present conditions. As scab longshoremen unloaded the ship, union teamsters with union buttons in their hats received the goods from their hands, loaded them into their teams and drove merrily away. As scab longshoremen loaded a ship union, Men culled it, and when the cargo was safely on board, Union Marine Engineers set up steam, and Union Seamen and Firemen took it out of the dock on its voyage to its destination. Can men who are trained and taught to believe that such a course of conduct is right and proper be expected to realise the oneness of the interests of the working class as a whole against the capitalist class as a whole, and vote and act accordingly? In short, can their field of vision be so extensive that it can see the brotherhood of all men, and yet so restricted that it can see no harm in a brother labour organisation in the one industry being beaten to death by capital? Contrast this woeful picture of divided and disorganised unionism in America with the following account from the New York Sun of the manner in which 
the socialist unionists of Scandinavia stand together in a fight against the common enemy, irrespective of craft interests or craft contracts. Quotes. A short sojourn in Scandinavia, particularly in Copenhagen and the southern part of Sweden, gives one an object's lesson in socialism. In some way or other, the socialists have managed to capture all the trade unions in these parts, and between them have caused a regime of terror for everybody who is unfortunate enough to own a business of any sort. Heaven help him if he fires one of his help or tries to assert himself in any way. He is immediately declared in blockade. The socialist term means practically the same as a boycott. If the offending businessman happens to be a retail merchant, all workmen are warned of his premises. The drivers for the wholesale houses refuse to deliver goods at his store. The truckman refused to cart anything to or from his place, and so on. In fact, he's a doomed man unless he comes to terms with the union. It is worth mentioning that boycotting bulletins and also the names and addresses of those who are bold enough to help the man out are published in leaded type in all the socialistic newspapers. A law to prevent the publication of such boycotting announcements was proposed in the Swedish Riksdag this year, but was defeated. If the boycotted person be a wholesale dealer, the proceedings are much the same, or rather they are reversed. The retailers are threatened with the loss of the workmen's trade unless they cease dealing with such a firm. The truckmen refuse to hand, <coughs> refuse to haul for it. It has even happened that the scavengers have refused to remove the, the refuse from the premises, page 30. More often, however, the cans are accidentally dropped on the stairs. These scavengers belong to the city's own forces as a rule and receive pensions after a certain level, length of service, but there are, they have all sworn allegiance to the socialist cause. In reading the foregoing, it is well to remember that practically all the working men of such cities, that is practically all Sweden and Denmark, are union men, that is, socialists, and therefore able to carry out their threats. End quotes. Here we have a practical illustration of the power of socialism when it rests upon an economic organisation and the effectiveness and far-reaching activity of unionism when it is inspired by the socialist ideal. Now as an equally valuable object lesson in American unionism, an object lesson in how not to do it, let us picture a typical state of affairs in the machine industry. The molders' contracts with their boss expires and they go out on strike. In a machine shop, the molder occupies a position intermediate between the pattern maker and the machinist, or, as they are called in Ireland, the engineers. When the molders go out, the boss who has had all his plans laid for months beforehand brings in a staff of scabs and installs them in the places of the striking workers. Then the tragic comedy begins. The union pattern maker makes his patterns and hands them over to the scab molder. The scab molder casts his moulds, and when they are done, the union machinist takes them from him and placidly finishes the job. Then, having finished their day's work, they go to their union meetings and vote donations of a few hundred dollars to help the strikers to defeat the boss, after they had worked all day to help the boss defeat the strikers. Thus, they exemplify the solidarity of labour. 
When the molders are beaten, the machinists and pattern makers and the blacksmiths and the electricians and the engineers and all the rest take their turn of going up against the boss in separate bodies to be licked. As each is taking its medicine, its fellows of other crafts in the same shop sympathise with it in the name of the, of the solidarity of labour and continue to work in the service of the capitalist against which the strike is directed in the name of the sacred contract of the craft union. When the coal miners of Pennsylvania had their famous strike in 1902, the railroad brotherhoods hauled in scabs to take their places, and when the scabs had mined coal, the same railroad men hauled out the scab mines into mines coal. Need we go on to prove our point that industrial division and discord is the order of the day among, amongst the workers, and that this disunion and confusion on the economic fields cannot fail to perpetuate itself upon the political field. Those orators who reproach the workers with being divided on the political fields, although united on the industrial, are simply misstating facts. Page 31. The workers are divided on both, and as political parties are the reflex of economic conditions. It follows that industrial union, once established, will create the political unity of the working class. We feel that we cannot too strongly insist upon this point. Political division is born of industrial division. Political scabbery is born of industrial craft scabbery. Political weakness keeps even step with industrial weakness. It is an axiom enforced by all the experiences of the ages that they who rule industrially will rule politically, and therefore they who are divided or wrongly organised industrially will remain impotent politically. The failure of Mr. Gompers to unite politically the force of the American Federation of Labour was the inevitable outcome of his own policy of division on the industrial battleground. He reversed the natural process by trying to unite men on class lines, while he opposed every effort, as in the case of the Brewers, to unite them on industrial lines. The natural lines of thought and action lead from the direct to the indirect, from the simple to the complex, from the immediate to the ultimate. Mr. Gompers ignored this natural line of development and preached the separation into craft organisations with separate craft interests of the workers and then expected them to heed his call to unity on the less direct and immediate battleground of politics. He failed as, in, as even the socialists would fail if they remained equally blind to the natural law of our evolution into class consciousness. That natural law leads us as individuals to unite in our crafts, as crafts to unite in our industry, as industries in our class. And the finished expression of that evolution is, we believe, the appearance of our class upon the political battleground, with all the economic power behind it to enforce its mandates. Before that day dawns, our political parties of the working class are but propagandist agencies, John the Baptist of the New Redemption, but when that day dawns, our political party will be armed with all the might of our class, will be revolutionary in fact as well as in, in thought. To Irish men and women especially, we do not need, we feel, to labour this point. The historic example of the Land League bequeaths to us a precious legacy of wisdom, both practical and revolutionary, shaping our course of action. During Land League days in Ireland, when a tenant was evicted from a farm, not only his fellow tenants, but practically the whole country, united to help him in his fight. 
When the evicted farm was rented by another tenant, a land grabber or scab, every person in the countryside shunned him as a leper, and still better, fought him as a traitor. Nor did they make the mistake of fighting the traitor and yet working with his employer, the landlord. No, they included both in the one common hostility. At the command of the Land League, every servant and labourer quits the service of the landlord. In, li- land, in Ireland, it is well to remember, in order to appreciate the acts of labourers, that the landlords were usually better paymasters and more generous employers than the tenant farmers. Page 32. <coughs> the labourers, therefore, might reasonably have argued that the fights of the tenant farmers was none of their business but they indulged in no such blindingly selfish hair-splitting. When the landlord had declared war upon the tenant by evicting him, the labourers responded by war upon the landlord. Servant boy and servant girl at once quit his service. The carman refused to drive him, the cook to cook for him. His linen remained unwashed, his harvest unreaped, his cows unmilked, his house and fields deserted. The grocer and the butcher, the physician and the schoolmaster were alike hostile to him. If the children of the landgrabber, Scab, entered school, all other children rose and left. If the landgrabber or his landlord attended mass, everyone else at mass walked out in a body. They found it hard to get anyone to serve them or feed them in health, to attend them in sickness or to bury those dear to them in death. It was this relentless and implacable war upon the land's owning class and traitors among the tenant class which gave the word boycott to the English language, although its enforcement, through its enforcement against an Irish landowner, Captain Boycott. It was often horrible, it was always ugly in appearance to the superficial observer, but it was marvellously effective. It put courage and hope and manhood into a class long reckoned as the most enslaved in Europe. It broke the back of the personal despotism of the Irish landlord and so crippled his social and economic power that Irish landed estates from being a favourite form of investment for the financial interests sank to such a position that even the most reckless money lender would for a time scarce accept a mortgage upon them. That it failed or attaining real economic freedom for the Irish people was due not to any defect in its method of fighting, but rather to the fact that economic questions are not susceptible of being settled within the restricted radius of any one small nation, but are acted upon by influences worldwide in their character. But how great a lesson for the American worker is to be found in this record of a class struggle in Ireland. The American worker was never yet so low in the social and political scale as the Irish tenant. Yet the Irish tenant rose and by sheer force of his unity on the economic field shattered the power of his master. Whilst the American worker remained divided upon the economic field, sinks day by day lower towards serfdom. The Irish tenant had to contend against the overwhelming power of a foreign empire backing up the economic power of a native tyranny yet he conquered, whilst the American worker, able to become the political sovereign of the country, remains the sport of the political factions of his masters and the slave of their social power. The Irish tenants, uniting on the economic field, felt his strength, 
and carrying the fight into politics simply swept into oblivion every individual or party that refused to serve his class interests. But the American toilers remained divided on the economic field, page 33, and hence are divided and impotent upon the political zealous servants of any interests of but their own. Need we point to the moral more? Everyone who has the interests of the working class at heart, everyone who wishes to see the Socialist Party command the allegiance of the political hosts of labour, should strive to realise industrial union is a solid foundation upon which alone the political unity of the workers can be built and directed towards a revolutionary end. To this end, all those who work for industrial unionism are truly cooperating even when they least care for political activities. From The Harp, December 1908. Page 35. The Dublin Lockout on the Eve. Perhaps before this issue of the Irish worker is in the hands of its readers, the issues now at stake in Dublin will be brought to a final determination. All the capitalist newspapers of Friday last join in urging or giving favourable publicity to the views of others urging the employers of Dublin to join in a general lockout of the members of the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. It is as well. Possibly some such acts is necessary in order to make that portion of the working class which still holds undecided to understand clearly what it is that lies behind the tyrannical and browbeating attitude of the proprietors of the Dublin tra- tramway system. The fault of the transport union? What is it? Let us tell it in plain language. Its fault is this, that it found the labourers of Ireland on their knees and has striven to raise them to the erect position of manhood. It found them with all the vices of slavery in their souls and it strove to eradicate these vices and replace them with some of the virtues of free men. It found them with no other weapons of defence than the arts of the liar, the lickspittle and the toady, and it combined them and taught them to abhor these arts and rely proudly on the defensive power of combination. It, in short, found a class in which seven centuries of social outlawry had added fresh degradations upon the burden it bore as the members of a nation suffering from the cumulative effects of seven centuries of national bondage. And out of this class, the degraded slaves of slaves, more degraded still. For what degradation is more abysmal than that of those who prostitute their manhood on the altar of profit-mongering? Out of this class of slaves, the labourers of Dublin, the transport union, has created an army of intelligent, self-reliant men, abhorring the old arts of the toady, the lickspittle and the caller, and trusting alone to the disciplined use of their power to labour, or to withdraw their labour to ascertain and maintain their rights as men. To put it in other words, put but words as pregnant with truth and meaning. The Irish Transport Workers' Union found that before its advent, the working class of Dublin had been taught by all the educational agencies of the country, by all the social influences of their masters, that this world was created for the special benefits of the various sections of the master class, that king and lords and capitalists were of value, that even flunkies, toadies, lickspittle and poodle dogs had an honoured place in the scheme of the universe, but that there was neither... Honour, page 36, credits nor consideration to the man or woman who toils to maintain them all. 
Against all this, the transport union had taught that they who toil are the only ones that do matter, that all others are but beggars upon the bounty of those who work with hand or brain, and that this superiority of social value can at any time be realised, be translated into actual fact by the combination of the labouring class. Preaching, organising and fighting upon this basis, the transport union has done what? If the value of a city is to be found in the development of self-respect and high conception of social responsibilities among a people, then the Irish Transport Union found Dublin the poorest city in these countries by reason of its lack of these qualities. And by imbuing the workers with them, it has made Dublin the richest city in Europe today, rich by all that counts for greatness in the history of nations. It is then upon this working class so enslaved, this working class so led and so enriched with moral purposes and high aims that the employers propose to make general war. Shall we shrink from it, cower before their onset? A thousand times no. Shall we crawl crawl back into our slums, abase our hearts, bow our knees and crawl once more to lick the hand that would smite us? Shall we, who have been carving out for our children a brighter future, a cleaner city, a freer life, consent to betray them instead into the grasp of the bloodsuckers from whom we have dreamt of escaping? No, no, and yet again no. Let them declare their lockout. It will only hasten the day when the working class will lock out the capitalist class for good and all. If, for taking the sight of the train men, we are threatened with suffering, why we have suffered before. But let them understand well that once they start the ball rolling, no capitalist power on earth can prevent it continuing to roll, that every day it will add to the impetus it will give to the working class purpose, to the thousands it will bring to the working class ranks, and every added suffering inflicted upon the workers will be a fresh obstacle in the way of moderation when the day of final settlement arrives. Yes, indeed, it is going to be a wedding. Let it be a wedding. And if it is going to be awake, let it be awake. We are ready for either. In The Irish Worker, 30th of April, 1913. Page 37. Glorious Dublin. To the readers of Forward, possibly some sort of apology is due for the non-appearance of my notes for the past few weeks, but I'm sure that they will that they quite well understand that I was, so to speak, otherwise engaged. In the day I generally write my little screed, I was engaged on the 31st of August in learning how to walk around in a ring with about 40 other unfortunates kept six paces apart, yet slipping a word or two to the poor devil in front or behind me without being noticed by the watchful prison warders. The first question I asked was generally, Say, what are you in for? Then the rest of the conversation ran ran thus. For throwing stones at the police. Well, I hope you did throw them and hit. No, by God, that's the worst of it. I was pulled coming out of my own house. Pulled is the Dublin word for arrested. It was somewhat mortifying to me to know that I was the only person apparently in prison who had really committed the crime for which I had been arrested. It gave me a sort of feeling that I was lowering the moral tone of the prison by coming amongst such a group, crowd of blameless citizens. But the concluding point of our colloquy was a little more encouraging. It usually usually finished in this way. Are you in the transport union? Of course I am. 
Good. Well, if they filled all the prisons in islands, they couldn't beat us, my boy. No, thank God they can't. We'll fight all the better when we get out. And there you have the true spirit. Batten charges, prison cells, untimely death and acute starvation all were faced without a murmur. And in face of them all, the brave Dublin workers never lost faith in their ultimate triumph, never doubted that their organisation would emerge victorious from the struggle. This is the great fact that many of our critics among the English Labour leaders seem to lose sight of. The Dublin fight is more than a trade, trade union fight. It is a great class struggle and recognised as such by all sides. We in Ireland feel that to doubt our victory would be to lose faith in the destiny of our class. Page 38. I heard of one case where a labourer was asked to sign the agreements for swearing the Irish Transport and General Workers Union. He told his employer, a small capitalist builder, that he refused to sign. The employer, knowing the man's circumstances, reminded him that he had a wife and six children who would be starving within a week. The reply of this humble labourer rose to the heights of sublimity. It is true, sir, he said. They will starve, but I would rather see them go out one by one in their coffins than that I should disgrace them by signing that. And with a head erect he walks out to share hunger and privation with his loved ones. Hunger and privation and honour. Defeat? Bah! How can such a people be defeated? His case is typical of thousands more. Take the case of the United Builders Labourers Trade Union, for instance. This was a rival union to the IRS Transport and General Workers Union. Many sharp passages had occurred between them and employers counted confidently upon their cooperation in the struggle. Mr. William Martin Murphy especially praised them and exulted in their supposed acquisition in his plans. Remember also that they were a divided society, dividing their funds at the end of each year and therefore without any strike funds. When the members of their union were asked to sign the agreement, promising never to join or help the transport union, not one man consented. But all over Dublin, their 2,500 members marched out to help the transport boys. Long ere these lines are written, they have experienced all the horrors of starvation, but with grim resolve they have tightened their belts and presented an unyielding front to the enemy. It is a pleasure to me to recall that I was a member of their union before I went to America, and that they twice ran me as their candidate for Dublin City Council before the Irish Transport and General Workers Union was dreamed of, or before our friend Jim Larkin brought the aid of his wonderful magnetism to the labour movements in Ireland. What is true is that union is also true of most of the skilled trades. All are showing wonderful loyalty to their class. Coach builders, sawyers, engineers, bricklayers, each trade that is served by general labourers, walks out along with the transport boys, refuses to even promise to work with anyone who signs the employer's agreement and cheering lines up with their class. Or think of the heroic women and girls. Did they care to evade the issue? They might have remained at work. For the first part of the agreement asks them to merely repudiate the transport workers, and as women, they are members of the Irish Women's Workers Union, not of the transport. Page 38, page 39. But the second part pledges them to refuse to help the transport union, and in every shop, 
factory and sweating hellhole in Dublin. As the agreement is presented, they march with pinched faces, threadbare clothes and miserable footgear, but with high hopes, undaunted spirit and glorious resolves shining out of their eyes. Happy the men who will secure such wives. Thrice bless the nation which has such girls as the future mothers of the race. Our comrades, it is good to have lived in Dublin in these days. And then our friends write deprecatingly to the British press of the dislocation of trade involved in sympathetic strikes of the perpetual conflicts in which they would involve great trade unions. To these arguments, if we call them such, our answer is sufficient. It is this. If the capitalist class knew that any outrages upon a worker, any attack upon labour would result in a prompt dislocation of trade, perhaps national in its extent, that the union unions were prepared to spend their last copper if necessary rather than permit a brother or sister to be injured, then the knowledge would not only ensure a long cessation from industrial skirmishing such as the unions are harassed by today, it would not only ensure peace to the unions, but that's, but what is of vastly more importance, it would ensure that the individual worker, a piece from slave driving and harassing at his work, such as the largest unions are apparently unable to guarantee under present methods. Mark, when I say, prepare to spend their last copper if necessary, I am not employing merely a rhetorical flourish. I am using the words literally. As we believe that in the socialist society of the future, the entire resources of the nation must stand behind every individual, guaranteeing him against want. So today our unions must be prepared to fight with all their resources to safeguard the rights of every individual member. The adoption of such a principle, followed by a few years of fighting on such lines to convince the world of our earnestness, would not only transform the industrial area arena, but would revolutionise politics. Each side would necessarily seek to grasp the power of the state to reinforce its position, and politics would thus become what they ought to be, a reflex of the industrial battle, and lose the power to masquerade it as a neutral power detached from economic passions or motives. At present, I regret to say, Labour politicians seem to be losing all reality as effective aids their our struggles on the industrial battlefield are becoming more and more absorbed in questions of administration or taxation, and only occasionally, as in the miners' national strike, really rise to a realisation of their true role of parliamentary outposts of the industrial army. The parliamentary tail in Britain still persists in wagging the British industrial dog. Once the dog really begins to assert his true position, we will be troubled no more, page 40, by carping critics of Labour politics, nor yet with Labour politicians' confessions of their own impotence in such great crises as that of the railway strike or the Johannesburg massacres. Nor yet would we see that awful spectacle we have seen lately of Labour politicians writing to the capitalist press to denounce the methods of a union which, with 20,000 men and women locked out in one city, is facing an attempt of 400 employers to starve its members back into slavery. And thus, Brutus, that you should play the enemy's game at such a crisis. Every drop of ink you spilled in such an act stopped a loaf of bread on its way to some starving family. 
The following letter appeared in the Dublish Irish Times and is a gem that the readers of Forward should appreciate. The labour crisis in Dublin, sir, proverbially akin tragedy and comedy, have apparently joined in their final embrace. Released last week from Mountjoy Jail for the same offence, the Allied protagonists of Liberty Hall, James Larkin and James Connolly, have upset many important institutions and queered not a few pictures. Yesterday at the same moment, while the Reverend Father Condon OSA uttered the thunders of Rome to the Grand Annual Office of the United Confraternities of Dublin in honour of the Blessed Virgin, against Larkin and his works, James Connolly was received in the streets of Belfast with volleys of stones, accompanied with cries of no pope. What, what under heaven does it really mean? Who said a sympathetic strike? Yours, etc., a disciple of the late W.S. Gilbert Dublin, 18th September 1913. From forwards, 4th of October 1913. Page 41. The Isolation of Dublin. I want this week to talk about the isolation of Dublin. Some seven or eight weeks ago, the proposal to isolate Dublin was a subject of much controversy in the Labour papers and much fierce comment in the capitalist press. It is my desire in this week's article to tell how and in what manner the proposal was carried through and how it is that now Dublin is isolated. It is not necessary, I presume, to remind our readers of the beginning of the Dublin struggle. Let us, just for convenience sake, take up the fight at the moment it became became a subject of national action on the part of the British Labour movement. A public meeting had been proclaimed in Dublin in a brazen, illegal manner for declaring that this proclamation was illegal and advising their leaders to disregard it and stand to their rights. A number of leaders of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union had been arrested and imprisoned. A wholesale battening of the people had followed, and Dublin was the scene of the most unparalleled police brutality. An appeal was made to the British Trades Union Congress, then happily sitting, and that body, in the name of the British working class, nobly rose to the occasion and pledged the credit of the whole British Labour movement to see their Dublin comrades through the fight. As a result, the right of free speech was reasserted in Dublin, a supply of food was arranged for through the dispatch of special chartered steamers, and a huge amount of money was raised to enable the men and women of Dublin to keep the fight going. Never was such enthusiasm in Never was seen such enthusiasm in a labour fight. Trade unionists, socialists of all kinds, anarchists, industrialists, syndicalists, all the varying and hitherto discordant elements of the labour movement found a common platform, were joined together in pursuit of a common object. Now permit me to underscore that point and emphasise its great importance. For long years we have been preaching to the labour movement the necessity of concerted industrial action, telling it that the time was rotten ripe for industrial unity and declaring that, as the interests of each were the concern of all, our organisations should be rearranged with a view to the conserving of their common interests. We found that, to a large extent, these ideas were were taking root in the minds of the workers, but that, to a still larger extent, the tested acceptance of our ideas 
failed to evoke concerted action built upon these lines. Page 42. The forces of our enemies were united and wielded with all the precision and relentlessness with which the general staff of an army would wield the battalions and brigades which formed the component parts of that army. But the battalions and brigades of the army of labour, when engaged in battle, had no efficient general staff to guide and direct the whole army to the salvation of its individual units, and, were still, had none of that esprit de corps which on the military battlefields would make the desertion of, of any section to its fate an unthinkable course to the officers of the divisions not engaged. We had seen at London, at Leith and elsewhere, that whereas the whole force of the shipping federation has been actively engaged in fighting the dockers of these ports, the dockers and seamen of the other ports had maintained the peace, and left their Leith or London brothers to bear alone the full force of the federation attack, instead of meeting that attack by a movement against the flanks and rear of the federation in these other ports. We know that although much of this blundering was due to the sectional jealousy of various Union leaders, much was also due to the fact that the conception of common action on a national scale by the whole working class had not yet entered the minds of the rank and file as a whole. Something had been wanting, something that would have made the minds of the workers more responsive, more ready to accept the broader idea and to act upon its acceptance. That something Dublin supplied. The tragic suddenness with which the Dublin fight was thrust upon public attention, the tragic occurrences of the first few days, working class, martyrdom, the happy coincidence of a trade union congress, the intervention of British trade unionists to assert the right of public meeting for Irish workers, filling the gap in the ranks caused by the jailing of Irish trade union leaders, the brilliant inspiration of a food ship, and last but not least, the splendid heroism of the Dublin men and women showing out against the background of the squalor and misery of the houses. There are times in history when we realise that it is easier to convert a multitude than it ordinarily is to convert an individual, when indeed ideas seem to seize upon the masses as contra-distinguished by ordinary times when individuals slowly seize ideas. The propagandist toils on for decades in seeming failure and ignominy when suddenly some great event takes place in accord with the principles he has been advocating and immediately finds that the seed he has been sowing is springing up in plants that are covering the earth. To the idea of working-class unity, to the seed of industrial solidarity, Dublin was the great event that enabled it to seize the minds of the masses, the germinating force that gave power to the sea to fructify and cover these islands. Page 43. I say in all solemnity and seriousness that in its attitudes towards Dublin, the working class movement of Great Britain reached its highest points of moral grandeur, attained for a moment to a realisation of that sublime unity towards which the best in us must continually aspire. Could that feeling but have been crystallised into organic expression? Could we but have had real statesmen amongst us who, recognising the wonderful leap forward of our class, would have hastened to burn behind us the boats that might, e might make easy a retreat to the old ground of isolation and division? Could we have found labour leaders capable enough to declare that now 
that the working class had found its collective soul. It should hasten to express itself as befitted that soul and not be fettered by the rules, regulations and codes of organisations conceived in the old and outworn spirit of sectional jealousies. Could these things have but been vouchsafed to us? What a new world could now be opening delightfully upon the vision of labour? Consider what Dublin meant to you all. It meant that the whole force of organised labour should stand behind each unit of organisation in each and all of its battles, that no company, battalion or brigade should henceforth be allowed to face the enemy alone, and that the capitalist would be taught that when he fought a union anywhere, he must be prepared to fight all unions everywhere. For the first days and weeks of the struggle, the working classes of Great Britain attained to the heights of moral grandeur expressed in that idea. All labour stood behind Dublin, and Dublin rejoiced. Dublin suffered and agonised, but rejoiced that even in its suffering it was the medium for the apostolate of a rejuvenating idea. How often have I heard the responsive cheers to the question whether they would be prepared to stand by others as these others had stood by them. And now? Dublin is isolated. We asked our friends of the tri transport trade unions to isolate the capitalist class of Dublin, and we asked the other unions to back them up. But no, they said, we would rather help you by giving you funds. We argue that a strike is an attempt to stop the capitalist from carrying on his business that the success or failure of the strike depends entirely upon the success or non-success of the capitalist to do without the strikers. If the capitalist is able to carry on his business without the strikers, then the strikers lost, even if the strikers receive more in strike pay than they formerly did in wages. We said that if scabs are working in a, working a ship and union men discharged in another port, the boat so loaded, then those union men are strike breakers, since they help the capitalist in question to carry on his business. That if union seamen man a boat discharged by scabs, these union seamen or firemen are by the same reason strike breakers. So also are the railway men or carters who assist in transporting the goods handled by scabs for the capitalist who is fighting his men or women. Page 24. In other words, we appeal to the collective souls of the workers against the collective hatred of the capitalist. We ask for no more than the logical development of that idea of working class unity, that the working class of Britain should help us to prevent the Dublin capitalists carrying on their business without us. We ask for the isolation of the capitalists of Dublin, and for, answers, for answer, the leaders of the British labour movements proceeded calmly to isolate the working class of Dublin. As an answer to those who supported our request for the isolation of Dublin, we were told that a much better plan would be to increase the subsidies to enable us to increase strike pay. As soon as this argument had served its purpose, the subsidies fell off, and the Dublin fund grew smaller and smaller as if by a prearranged plan. We had rejected the last terms offered by the employers on the strength of this talk by of increased supplies, and soon and as soon as that last attempt at settlements fell through, the supplies gradually froze up instead of being increased as we had been promised. In addition to this, the National Union of Railwaymen 
while in attendance at the special conference in London on the 9th of December, had actually in their pockets the arrangements for the restarting of work on the London and Northwestern boats at the north wall of Dublin, and in the train returning to Dublin the day after the conference, we read of the line being reopened. No vote was taken of the men on strike. They were simply ordered back to work by the officials and told that if they did not return, their strike pay would be stopped. The Siemens and Fireman's Union men in Dublin were next ordered to man the boats of the headline of steamers, then being discharged by free labourers supplied by the Shipping Federation. In both Dublin and Belfast, the members refused, and they were then informed that union men would be brought from Great Britain to take their places. Union men to be brought from England to take the place of members of the same union who refused to desert their brothers of the transport union. We were attempting to hold up Guinness's porter. A consignment was sent to Sligo for shipment there. The local transport union official wired me for instructions. I wired to hold it up. His men obeyed and it was removed from Sligo, rallied to Derry, and there put on board by members of Mr. Sexton's union on ships manned by members of Mr. Havelock's Wilson's union and discharged in Liverpool by members of Mr. Sexton's union. While the City of Dublin Steam Packets Company was still insisting upon carrying the goods of our worst enemy, Jacobs, who is still enforcing the agreements denounced by Sir Geo Asquith, the members of the Seamen and Firemen's Union were ordered to sign on in their boats, although our men were still on strike. We were informed by Mr Joe Houghton of the Scottish Dockers that his union would not hold up any boats for us unless joint action was taken by the Transport Workers Federation, page 25. As on a previous occasion, his members at air had worked coal boats belonging to a Belfast firm that was making war upon the Irish Transport Workers' Union. We do not blame Joe very much. He had been disobeyed at air. Perhaps he was coerced in Glasgow. But why go on? Sufficient to say that the working-class unity of the first days of the Dublin fight was sacrificed in interests of sectional officialism. The officials failed to grasp the opportunity offered to them to make a permanent reality of the uni- union of working-class forces brought into being by the spectacle of rebellion, martyrdom and misery exhibited by the workers of Dublin. All England and Scotland rose to it. Working-class officialdom and working-class rank-and-file alike responded to the call of inspiration. It would have raised us all upwards and onwards towards our common emancipation. But sectionalism, intrigues and old-time jealousies stand us in the hour of victory, and officialdom was the first to fall to the tempter. And so we Irish workers must go down into hell, bow our backs to the lash of the slave driver, let our hearts be seared by the iron of his hatred, and instead of the sacramental wafer of brotherhood and common sacrifice, eat the dust of defeat and betrayal. Dublin is isolated. From forwards, 7th of February, 1914. Page 46, Anonymous Poem from the Early 20th Century USA We have fed you, for all, fed you all for a thousand years, and you hail us still unfed, though never, there's never a dollar of all your wealth but marks the workers dead. 
We have yielded all our best to give you rest, and you lie, self-fouls, old bull. For if blood be the price on all your wealth, good God, we have paid in full. There's never a mind-blown skywards now, and but we are buried alive for you. There's never a wreck drift shore ward now, but we are its ghastly crew. Go reckon our dead by the forges red, and there's factories where we spin. If blood be the price of your cursed wealth, good God, we have paid it in. We have fed you all a thousand years, for that was our doom you know, from the days when you chained us in your fields to the strike of a week ago. You have eaten our lives and our babies and wives, and we're told it's your legal share. But if blood be the price of your lawful wealth, good God, we have bought it fair. Page 47. The Problem of Trade Union Organisation Recently I have been complaining in this column and elsewhere of the tendency in the labour movement to mistake mere concentration upon the industrial field for essentially revolutionary advance. My point was that the amalgamation or federation of unions, unless carried out by men and women with a proper revolutionary spirit, was as likely to create new obstacles in the way of effective warfare as to make that warfare possible. The argument was reinforced by citations of what is taking place in the ranks of the railway men and in the transport industry. There we find that the amalgamations and federations are rapidly becoming engines for steamrollering or suppressing all manifestations of revolutionary activity for the effective demonstrations of brotherhood. Every appeal to take industrial action on behalf of the union in distress is blocked by insisting upon the necessity of first obtaining the sanction of the executive, and in practice it is found that the process of obtaining that sanction is so long, so cumbrous, and surrounded with so many rules and regulations that the union in distress is certain to be either disrupted or bankrupted before the executive can be moved. The greater unionism is found in short to be forging greater fetters for the working class to bear to the real revolutionary industrial unionism the same relation as a servile state would bear to the cooperative commonwealth of our dreams. The argument of mine, which to, to many people might appear as far-fetched, gains new strength from the circumstances related to our friend Robert Williams of the Transport Workers' Federation in the weekly reports of that body for the 9th of May. After describing how the headline company played with the above federation in connection with its protest against the continued victimisation of the members of the Irish Transport Workers' Union and how he was powerless to effect anything as the other unions involved still continued to work the scab ships, he goes on to tell of a similar state of affairs uh, in the Port of London. The quotation is long, but it is so valuable an instructive lesson to all you readers that I do not hesitate to give it as an ample confirmation of my argument. Page 48, quotes, This again, this week again, there has been a recrudescence of the trouble existing before between the Siemens Union at Tilbury and the Anglo-American Oil Company. This company has a fleet of oil tank steamers running between America and various points in this country. As a result of the protest made by the crew of the SS Narragansett against the chief steward, 
who acted in the most inhumane manner towards one of the crew who received a severe injury. This company displaced Union men and took on Shipping Federation scabs. Further than this, they have replaced all Union men by obtaining Federation scabs in ship after ship since the commencement of the trouble. On Sunday last, the Narragansett arrived once more at Perfleet on the lower reaches of the Thames and the Tilbury Sectory of the Seamen's Union, Mr. E. Potten, naturally commenced to hustle. He communicated with Mr. Harry Gosling, Mr. Havelock Wilson, and the Secretary of this Federation in order, if possible, to bring pressure upon the company by preventing the ship from being bunkered. After consultation with Mrs. Gosling and Wilson, the Secretary telephoned and further wrote the Anglo-American Oil Company asking them to confer with one or more of these three in order to avoid a possible extension of the dispute to the Coleys and the tugboatmen, etc. Perfleet steamers are bunkered from lighters. As in the case for the case of the headline, the Secretary specifically drew the attention of the Anglo-American Oil Company to the nature of the complaints and also sent a written request following upon a telephone message by special messenger for the purpose of saving time. It should be remembered that the bunkers were all aboard by Tuesday and this was written on Monday. The secretary was not very much surprised, however, to receive a reply asking him what exactly the complaints are and on whose behalf are they made. The reply was strangely in keeping with the replies from the headline company. The inference is that both these replies received inspiration from the same source. We are writing these words in the hope that they will be read by all those responsible for the guidance and control of the transport workers in all our seaports. On the face of it, it seems that the one course of action was to call off the men who were fighting on the ship. If the company were asked for a fight, what earthly use is it to fight with a portion of your men, leaving all the others to render service to your enemy? This company has made an open attack on all their employees who are members of the Siemens Union. At the same time, the cargo of oil was being pumped into reservoir ashore by trade union engineers. The men employed ashore are members of an affiliated union in the Federation. The ship is bunkered by members of an affiliated union. The tugboats and lighters are staffed by members of an affiliated union. And still we are powerless. Page 49. We are not so fatuous as to suggest that continued warfare shall be waged by general strikes whenever a member considers his agreements or whenever an official encounters a difficulty. But we feel that we are driving back to the position we were in prior to 1911. A federation with 29 unions as its constituents, but with no ties more binding than the payments of 3D per member per year will not and cannot meet the requirements of modern industry. We are responsible to a quarter of a million men, and the existing methods are utterly incapable of protecting them from the insidious attacks of the employers. The organisation that is afraid of making a mass attack will experience a series of isolated disasters. The workers' organisation secures respect and consideration in proportion to the extent to which it can hamper and embarrass the employers against whom it is pitted. When cooperation is sought from one union by another, the men involved, say, consult an official. The official says, 
get the consent of my EC. The executive officer says, communicate with the Transport Workers Federation. The Federation waits for an addition, a decision from it, of its own executives, and by this inconsequent fiddling of time and opportunity, a thousand roams would have burnt to extinction. The employers move, strike, move and strike again with the rapidity of a serpent while we are turning about and contorting with the facility of an alligator. We have at once to determine whether the future is to mean for us efficiency, aptitude, capacity and life or muddle incompetence, decay and death. Just what is the real remedy for the state of matters, it would be hard to say. But it is at least certain that the organisations I've been speaking of have not discovered the true methods of working class organisations. They may, may be on the road to discovering it. They may also be on the road to foisting upon the working class a form of organisation which will make our last state infinitely worse than our first. It is the old story of adopting the letter but rejecting the spirit. The letter of industrial concentration is now accepted by all trade union officials, but the spirit of working-class solidarity is woefully absent. Each union and each branch of each union desires above all things to show a good balance sheet, and that that may be done every nerve is strained to keep their members at work and in a condition to pay subscriptions. Hence the pitiful dodgers to avoid taking sympathetic action in support of other unions, and hence also constant victories of the master class upon the industrial fields. I have often thought that we of the working class are too slow or too loath to take advantage, page 50, of the experience of our rulers. Perhaps if upon all the questions of industrial or other war we follow more closely after them, we would be able to fight them more successfully. Here is one suggestion I make on these lines. I am not welded to it, but I would like to see it discussed. In the modern state, the capitalist class has evolved for its own purposes of offence what it calls a cabinet. This cabinet controls its fighting forces, which must obey it implicitly. If the cabinet thinks the time and opportunity is ripe for war, it declares war at the most favourable moment and explains it reasons, its reasons to Parliament afterwards. Can we trust any of our members with such a weapon as the capitalist class trusts theirs? I think so. Can we not evolve a system of organisation which will leave to the unions the full local administration, but invest in a cabinet the power to call out the members of any union when such action is desirable and to explain their reasons for it afterwards? Such a cabinet might have the right to call upon all affiliated unions to reimburse the union whose members were called out in support of another, but in such but such unions so supported would be under the necessity of obeying instantly the call of the cabinet or whatever might be the name of the board invested with the powers indicated. Out of such an organisation, the way would be opened for a more thorough organisation of the working class upon the lines of real industrial unionism. At present, we are too much afraid of each other. Whatever be our form of organisation, the spirit of sectionalism still rules and curses our class. From forward, 23rd of May, 1914. Page 51. Old Wine in New Bottles. Scripture tells us in a very notable passage about the danger of putting new wine into old bottles. 
I propose to say a few words about the equally suicidal folly of putting old wine into new bottles, for I humbly submit that the experiment spoken of is very popular just now in the industrial world, has engaged the most earnest attention of most of the leaders of the working class, and received the practically unanimous endorsements of the labour and socialist press. I have waited in vain for a word of protest. In the year of grace 1905, a convention of American labour bodies was held in Chicago for the purpose of promoting a new working class organisation on more militant and scientific lines. The result of that convention was the establishment of the Industrial Workers of the World, the first labour organisation to organise itself with the definite ideal of taking over and holding the economic machinery of society. The means proposed to that end, and it is necessary to remember that the form of organisation adopted was primarily intended to accomplish that end, and only in the second degree as a means of industrial warfare and capitalism, was the enrolment of the working class in unions built upon the lines of the great industries. It was the idea of the promoters of the new organisation that craft interests and technical requirements should be met by the criterion of branches, that all such branches should be representative in a common executive, that all united should be members of an industrial union, which should embrace all branches and be coextensive with industry, that all industrial unions should be linked as members of one great union, and that one membership card should cover the whole working-class organisation. Thus was to be built up a working-class administration which should be capable of the revolutionary act of taking over society, and whose organisers and officers should, in the preliminary stages of organising and fighting, constantly remember and remembering, teach that no new order can replace the old until it is capable of performing the work of the old and performing it more efficiently for human needs. As one of the earliest organisers of that body, I desire to emphasise also that as a means of creating in the working class the frame of mind necessary to the upbuilding of this new order within the old, we taught, and I have yet seen no reason to reconsider our attitude upon this matter, that the interests of one were the interests of all, page 52, and that no consideration of a contract with a section of the capitalist class absolved any section of us from the duty of taking instant action to protect other sections when said sections were in danger from the capitalist enemy. Our attitude always was that in the swiftness and unexpectedness of our action lay our chief hopes of temporary victory, and since permanent peace was an illusory hope until permanent victory was secured, temporary victories were all that need concern us. We realised that every victory gained by the working class would be followed by some capitalist development that in course of time would tend to nullify it, but that until that development was perfect, the fruits of our victory would be ours to enjoy, and the resultant moral effect would be of incalculable value to the character and to the mental attitude of our class towards their rulers. It will thus be seen that in our view, and now I am about to point the moral, I may personally appropriate it and call it my point of view, the spirit, the character, the militant spirit, the fighting character of the organisation was of the first importance. 
I believe that the development of the fighting spirit is of more importance than the creation of the theoretically perfect organization. That indeed the most theoretically perfect organization may, because of its very perfection and vastness, be of the greatest possible danger to the revolutionary movement if it tends or is used to repress and curb the fighting spirit of comradeship in the rank and file. Since the establishment in America of the organization I have just sketched and the initiation of propaganda on the lines necessary for its purpose, we have seen in all capitalist countries, and notably in Great Britain, great efforts being made to abolish sectional division and to unite or amalgamate kindred unions. Many instances will arise in the minds of my readers, but I propose to take as a concrete example the National Transport Workers' Federation. Previous to the formation of this body, Great Britain was the scene of the propagandist activities of a great number of irregular and unorthodox bodies, which, taking their cue in the main from the industrial workers of the world, made great campaigns in favour of the new idea. Naturally, their arguments were in the main directed towards emphasising the absurdity implied in one body of workers remaining at work while another body of workers were on strike in the same employment. As a result of this campaign, frowned upon by leading officials in Great Britain, the Siemens strike of 1911 was conducted on and resulted in entirely new lines of action. The sympathetic strike sprang into being. Every group of workers stood by every allied group of workers, and a great wave of effective solidarity caught the workers in its grasp and beat and terrified the masters. Let me emphasize the points that the greatest weapon against capital was proven in those days to be the sporadic strike. It was its very specific. It was its very sporadic nature. It was swiftness and unexpectedness that won. Page fifty-three. It was ambush, the surprise attack of our industrial army, before which the well-trained battalions of the capitalists crumpled up in panic, against which no precautions were available. Since that time, we have had all over these countries a great wave of enthusiasm for amalgamations, for more cohesion in the working-class organisations. In the transport industry, all unions are being linked up until the numbers now affiliated have become imposing enough to awe the casual reader and silence the cavilling objector at trade union meetings. But I humbly submit that, side by side with the enlargement and affiliation of organisations, there has preceded a freezing up of the fraternal spirit of 1911. There is now, despite the amalgamations, less solidarity in the ranks of labour than was exhibited in that year of conflict and victory. If I could venture an analysis of the reason for this falling off in solidarity, I would have to point out that the amalgamations and federations are being carried out in the main by officials absolutely destitute of the revolutionary spirit, and that as a consequence the methods of what should be militant organisations, having the broad working-class outlook, are conceived and enforced in the temperance and spirit of the sectionalism these organisations were meant to destroy. Into the new bottles of industrial organisation is being poured the old cold wine of craft unionism. 
The much-condemned small unions of the past had at least this to recommend them, namely that they were susceptible to pressure from the sudden paternal impulses of their small membership. If their members worked side by side with scabs or received tainted goods from places where scabs were employed, the shame was all their own and proved frequently too great to be borne. When it did so, we had the sympathetic strike and the fraternisation of the working class. But when the workers handled tainted goods or working vessels loaded by scabs, our members of a nationwide organisation with branches in all great centres or ports, the sense of the personal responsibilities taken off the shoulders of each member and local officials and the spirit of solidarity destroyed. The official, the local official can conscientiously order the local member to remain at work with a scab or to handle the tainted goods pending action by the general executive. As the general executive cannot take action pending a meeting of delegates, and as the delegates at that meeting have to report back to their bodies, and these bodies again to meet, discuss and then report back to the general executive, which must meet, hear their reports and then perhaps order a ballot vote of the entire membership, after which another meeting must be held to tabulate the result of the vote and transmit it to the local branches, which must meet again to receive it. The chances are, of course, a million to one. That's the body of workers, page 54, in distress will be will be starved into subject, subjection, bankrupted or disrupted before the Leviathan organisation will allow their brothers on the spot to lift a finger or drop a tool in their aid. Readers may, perhaps, think that I am exaggerating the danger, but who will think so that remembers the vindictive fine imposed by the NUR upon its members in the north of England for taking swift action on behalf of a persecuted comrade, instead of going through all this red tape whilst he was suffering. Or who will think so that knows that Dublin and Belfast members of the Irish Transport Workers' Union have been victimised ever since the end of the lockout by the headline company, whose steamers have been and are regularly culled in British ports and manned by Belfast and British members of the Siemens and Fireman's Union. The amalgamations and federations that are being built up today are, without exception, being used in the old spirits of the worst type of sectionalism. Each local union or branch finds in the greater organisation of which it is a part a shield and excuse for refusing to respond to the call of brothers and sisters in distress for the handling of tainted goods, for the working of scab boats. A main reason for this shameful distortion of the great, greater unionism from its true purpose is to be found in the campaign against sporadic strikes. I have no doubt but that Robert Williams of the National Transport Workers Federation is fully convinced that his articles and speeches against such strikes are and were wise. I have just as little doubt that they were the best service performed by the capitalist for the capitalist by any labour leader of late years. The big strike, the vast massed battalions of labour against the massed battalions of capital on a field every inch of which has been explored and wrapped out beforehand, is seldom successful for various obvious reasons. 
the sudden strike and the sudden threats to strike suddenly has won more for labour than all the great labour conflicts in history. In the Boer War, the long line of communications was the weak points of the British Army. In a labour war, the ground to be covered by the goods of the capitalists is his line of communication. The larger it is, the better for the attacking forces of labour. But these forces must be free to attack or refuse to attack, just as their local knowledge guides them. But it will be argued their action might imperil the whole organisation. Exactly so, and their inaction might imperil that working-class spirit which is more important than any organisation. Between the horns of that dilemma, what can be done? In my opinion, we must recognise that the only solution of that problem is the choice of officers, local or national, from the standpoint of the responsiveness to the call for solidarity, and having got such officials, to retain them only as long as they can show results in the amelioration of the conditions of their members and the development of their union as a weapon of class warfare. If we develop on these lines, then the creation of a great industrial union, page 55, such as I have rudely sketched in my opening reminiscence, or the creation of those much more clumsy federations and amalgamations now being formed, will be of immense revolutionary value to the working class. If, on the contrary, we allow officialism of the old narrow sectional kinds to infuse their spirit into the new organisations and to strangle these with rules suited only to somnolent working class, then the greater unionism will but serve to load us with great fetters. It will but be to real unionism what the servile state should be to our ideal cooperative commonwealth. From The Age, 30th of April, 1914. Page 57, A Lesson of the Strike. The long-drawn-out fight with the City of Dublin Steam Packet Company is one of the most striking lessons yet offered of the absurdity of our present social arrangements. Here we have the spectacle of one man being able to upset the business and destroy the happiness of a whole community in order to gratify his personal spleen against men who refuse to be lowered beneath the level of their fellows. We find the Chamber of Commerce representing all their fellow businessmen, the Lord Mayor representing the interests of the city at large, the Under-Secretary for Ireland representing the British Government in Dublin, and the Chief Industrial Commissioner Sir George Asquith representing the Government of Great Britain, Britain, all anxious to have the dispute settled and the business of the port resumed, and this one man is able to set them all at defiance and proceed on his own way, wrecking their hopes along with his own business. The social system we live under is held by its apologists to be the one that gives the greatest freedom to the individual, combined with the fullest service to the community. The work of serving the public is not undertaken by a public authority, but is left to the haphazard enterprise of individuals spurred by the desire of gain. People are not fed, clothed, housed or warmed because the feeding, clothing, housing or warming is a public duty, but because certain individuals think that they can make a profit by so doing. If at any time these individuals think that they are not making enough profits by performing these functions, then they cease rendering this public service and the whole life of the community is thrown out of gear. 
This dispute is the case in point. Every shipowner on the quays of Dublin has learnt that he can pay the rate of wages asked by the City of Dublin Company strikers and make a profit while doing so. Knowing this to be the case, they keep their boats running to serve themselves and the public. The chairman of the City of Dublin Steam Packet Company declares that he cannot make his boats pay under the same conditions as his competitors and stop his boats accordingly. If his statement is true, then it is the most lamentable confession of inefficiency and bungling mismanagement. Yet no power says to this man. Either run your boats or resign and go out of business. Page 58. You cannot be allowed to disarrange the business of half of the merchants in the city. He is owner of the mail boat from Kingstown receives a large government subsidy and is thus in a better position than his competitors who have to make their business pay without any such aid. If he cannot make his business pay, then he should be treated as he would treat a dock labourer who could not work under the same conditions as his fellows. He should be fired to make room for men who can. But just there is the weakness of the present social system. This is not a public service and he is not a public servant. If a private service for private gain, it is a private service for private gain, and he is a private individual out of private profit, and willing to punish all his associates in the business world in order to make that profit, or in revenge for not making a profit big enough. Some day the world will wake up sufficiently to recognise that the capitalist conducting business on his own account is just as much a nuisance and as punglingly inefficient at the job, as were the old soldiers' chiefs of the past making war on their own account. And when the world does so recognise the fact, it will reduce private business enterprises to the same level as private armies and private wars. The nation will take over the work of organising the late industries of peace as it has taken out of private hands the owning of armies and the conducting of wars for private profit. And when it thinks about that matter, the recollection of the City of Dublin Steam Packets Company's war upon the interests of the Port of Dublin will be of great service in educating the public mind to agree to the change. From Workers' Republic, 8th of January 1916. Page 59. The Immigrants. Recently standing in the railway depot at Youngston, Ohio, Waiting for a train, I witnessed a spectacle that called up in my old heart some very deep emotions. As a train from the west pulled into the depot, there alighted from it an Italian peasant woman with five little children, all dressed in the characteristic garb of the Italian peasants. In about half hour, another train draws in. They were hurried aboard, and as they scrambled up the steps, the old mother ran from one to the other, gathering them under her care, as a hen gathereth her chicks. To me the solicitude and anxiety of the old woman was deeply touching. Cast upon the stormy waters of American life, more than three thousand miles from home, and knowing not a word of the language spoken around her, she was evidently absorbed in the one great thought of protecting and caring at all risks herself for her little ones. But to the majority of the lookers-on, there the spectacle apparently excited only derision, and some of the 
most openly derisive laughter came from the American women and girls with whom the platform was crowded. These things set me thinking and speculating, and to my mind's eye became the vision of the great army of proletarian women, of whom that poor peasant woman was no unworthy sample. I could not see the uncouthness and the rude garb and the clumsy shoes and all the other marks of poverty and unrequited toil which hypnotised the giggling womankind around me. I could only see the love and unselfishness and abiding faith exemplified in that poor member of my class in her venture upon the Cold War of capitalist America. Looking beneath the surface of things, I could see some poor, despised, unskilled Italian labourer in some of our construction gangs in town or country, toiling under the eyes of a harsh, unfeeling boss, sleeping at night in a rude, uncomfortable, unhealthy slum or shack, living on the poorest and cheapest food, and all the time scraping every cent together with his thought fixed upon the wife and children he had left thousands of miles away. And I could picture that trusting wife and whose innocent children waiting for long weary months upon some Piedmontese hillside in the malarial wastes of the Roman Campana and the quarries of Sicily or the uncharted labyrinths of Calabria, page 60, waiting, waiting, waiting in penury and suffering and anguish and hunger, waiting until the husband and father would send the American dollars, sanctified with his sweat and blood, to redeem them and bring them to the new land of promise. And then I could see that poor, ignorant woman, poor in this world's wealth, but how rich in faith and love, rise up out of her old home, tear herself away from all the associations and sweet memories of her childhood, and gathering around her, her little babies, set out with them, upon that three or four thousand mile travel across sea and land, amidst hostile and unsympathetic strangers, to rejoin her husband and sacrifice herself to make a home for her children. Talk of the faith that inspired the Crusades. What was it in comparison with that faith shown by these European wives and mothers, who in every land in Europe are year in and year out paralleling the experiences of that poor Italian peasant. In Italy, in Russia, in Poland, in Germany, in Scandinavia, in Turkey, in Hungary, a, in all the countries of the old world that new crusade is taking place, the poor women of the populist class, classes are waiting and suffering and hoping and achieving. And it is these people who bring to this country such rich stores of faith, affection and capabilities of patient martyrdom for their children that some political and social quacks would brand as undesirable aliens, as backward races. Think of that, and think also of the thousands of instances in which all that martyrdom, all that travail of emigration and breaking of home ties, brought no relief to the sufferers, brought them only from the companionship and hum human sympathy of the old world to the cruel, unfeeling environments of a new world's mad for gold, of a world basing all its activities and relations upon a cash nexus, upon a calculation centering around the dollar. Yet this crusade, this martyrdom of the poor, must go on until capitalism is crushed and socialism is achieved. Until then, the plaintive sorrowing verses of our Irish poetess 
Ethna Carberry will remain an epitome of and a fitting dirge to the dispersion not only of our Irish peasantry but to those of all Europe. The poem is They are going, going, going from the valleys and the hills. They are leaving far behind them heathery moor and mountain rills. All the wealth of hawthorn hedges with the brown thrust sways and trills. They are going shy-eyed colleens and lads so straight and tall from the purple peaks of Kerry, from the crags of wild Armiel, from the greening plains of Mayo and the glens of Donegal. So some must wander to the east, and some must wander west. Some must seek the white wastes of the north, and some a southern nest. Yet never shall they sleep so sweet as on your mother's breast. Within the city streets, hot, hurried, full of care, a sudden dream shall bring them a whiff of Irish air, a cool air faintly scented, blown soft from otherwhere. They may win a golden store, sure the winds were golden too, and no foreign skies hold beauty like the rainy skies they knew, nor any night winds cool their brow as did the foggy dew. This was from the, the Harp Strings, The Harp, January 1909. Page 62, Timeline of 1913-14 to Labour War. July, Murphy tells train workers he will sack them unless they disavow ITGWU. August 26. Workers stop all trams in protest and seek pay rises. August 29-31. Police riot attacking workers' demonstrations. September the 1st. British TUC Congress ple- pledges support. September. Employers extend lockouts. September the 9th, Connolly goes on a hunger strike in jail, which will win his release. Larkin goes to England for a fundraising tour. Mid-September, unofficial action by rail workers and others refusing to handle goods from Dublin. September the 27th, first of several ships organised by British trade unions, arrives in Dublin with food aid for their Dublin workers. October the 5th, a Board of Trade Inquiry recommends peace terms, which the Union accepts as a basis for negotiations, but the bosses flatly reject. October the 6th, Miners' Federation Conference in Britain calls for a general strike and solidarity. October the 18th, Dora Montefiore and others begin to organise to have strikers' children belittled with supporters' families billeted, billeted, <laughs> with supporters' families in England and Northern Ireland for duration of dispute. Catholic priests denounce and obstruct. October 28th, Connolly becomes Acting General Secretary of Union while Larkin is jailed. November the 1st, giant rally at Albert Hall in London in solidarity with strike called by Daily Herald. Mid-November, renewed rank-and-file solidarity in action in Britain. Larkin does speaking tour in Britain. December the 4th, TUC leaders visit Dublin to seek new talks, which again fail because bosses refuse all compromise. December the 9th, TUC special conference votes down motion for comprehensive boycott of goods from lockout employers. Support from British unions starts to scale down. January, 
Irish Labour Party, formed by trade unions in 1912, makes its first election campaign with candidates in Dublin municipal elections. January the 15th, Labour candidates narrowly failed to win more than one seat in Dublin municipal elections. January the 19th, Larkin advises strikers to go back to work on the best terms they can get. Over the following weeks, the strikes the strike gradually ebbs. The back page. Aiming to replace capitalism with socialism, James Connolly's organising and ideas evolved considerably. One idea he clung to from the turn of this century to his death in 1916 was industrial unionism, worker solidarity across grades and trades and sympathetic strikes. That is how he saw his work with Larkin on the Irish Transport Union, a union for an industry and the members watching the moment until they could take over running the industry. Poem We Only Want the Earth by James Connolly, 1907 Some men faint-hearted ever seek our programme to retouch and will insist whenever they speak that we demand too much. Tis passing strange, yet I declare such statements give me mirth, for our demands most moderate are, we only want the earth. Be moderate, the tremors cry, who dreads the tyrant's thunder. You ask too much and people fly from you aghast in wonder. Tis passing strange, for I declare such statements give me mirth, for our demands most moderate are, we only want the earth. Our masters all a godly crew, whose hearts throb for the poor, their sympathies assure us, too, if our demands were fewer. Most generous souls, but please observe, what they enjoy from birth is all we ever had the nerve to ask, that is, the earth. <coughs> the labour fucker, full of guile, base doctrine ever preaches, and whilst he bleeds the rank and file, tame moderation teaches. Yet in despite we'll see the day when, with sword in its girth, labour shall march in war array to realise its own, the earth. For labour long with sighs and tears to its oppressors melt, but never yet to aught save fears did the heart of tyrants melt. We need not kneel, our cause is high, of true men <coughs> there's no dearth, and our victory rallying cry shall be, we want the earth. <laughs> 